If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We've got several things I want to cover this morning, so we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, If you're new with us, or even if you've been with us for quite some time, let me just remind you kind of the heart of this series that we've been going through since the middle of August. Uh, We refer to this as stories, the goal of discipleship. And part of what we've talked about over the last several weeks is that when you think about the devoted life and living a life of discipleship, it should result in stories of transformation, right? That our identity as disciples, where we continually follow after Christ, should yield stories where we can point to things that are transforming in our own lives. Elements where we can say, I was once, but now through Christ, I, I see this newness. I'm created in a newness of life. We, we should have these things regularly before us. And yet at the same time, we're given a task to go and make disciples. And so we should be able to point to stories of transformation that we're seeing in the lives of others. And so that's, that's the heart of discipleship. That's the goal. And as we've gone through this series, we've tried to take some time to really unpack what does this look like for us here at this church? How do we practice this devoted life? And so we, we talked about, and for us in particular, when we talk about discipleship, we include uh, the ways in which this leads us both to the believer and the non-believer. A lot of times we, we see evangelism as something separate from discipleship, but we believe it's the first step of discipleship. So this should lead us into all arenas of life, <clears throat> into all different types of relationships. Uh, and, and when we engage in this sort of relationship, the terminology that we introduce at the front end of this series is that we believe some of the most essential elements of discipleship should include community, teaching, and accountability. Right, that we should experience those things whenever we engage in this sort of devoted lifestyle. And, and for us, we provide that and emphasize that in three distinct arenas. The corporate worship experience that we're all participating in in this moment. Sunday Connect, which happens before our main service. And then discipleship groups, which we're launching this year, that takes us beyond these walls and into each other's homes and neighborhoods. Right, those are the three arenas where we want to practice these elements of discipleship. Now, as we begin to walk through this, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that in this paragraph in the close of the second chapter of Acts, uh, there's this theme of community, right? That all the believers were together and had everything in common. And and when we first introduced the subject, we talked about how difficult this can be, especially in our hyper-individualized society, where everything is about the self. And, And we talked about those challenges, but that that God really created us for the neighbor and for neighborliness. And so we need to pursue those things. And, and once we hit on that verse, what we see from there are all these manifestations of this biblical community. So like last week, for example, we talked about radical generosity that's rooted in radical love. When we commit ourselves to one another, possessions follow. Anything we can do that could bring others into the sight and sound of the incarnate life, those things are subject to being given to the Lord. Right? And so we have radical expressions of generosity, but it's rooted in radical love. And so today we, we're going to build on this theme of community. And in this uh, particular verse that we're going to look at today gives us more descriptions of what this sort of biblical sense of community and togetherness really looks like. So if you have your Bibles, let's pick it up in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. <clears throat> Big believer in repetition. Hopefully it's just getting ingrained in your minds at this point. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In our focus verse this morning, verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So when you read verse 46, one of the things that I love about this particular verse is that it helps reiterate some of the major themes that we've already discussed in this particular paragraph, in particular devotion and togetherness. Now, that doesn't necessarily leap off the page at us because when you see the phrase continued to meet, it doesn't resonate the same way it does in verse 42, but that's actually the same word that is translated as devoted in verse 42. All right, so, so this idea of continuing to meet is a reminder that this is the devoted life. This is a life of devotion. And because it's translated this way, it reminds us that part of the ways in which we practice devotion is through this continual nature of it. It's persistence, right? Devotion requires persistence. It is not seasonal, it is not occasional, it is not situational, it is something that we do ongoing, right? It is something we do in every capacity. It is, it is a persistent practice. Now, a lot of times when we talk about persistence when it comes to the faith, we look at this in terms of our relationship with Christ, and, and rightly so, right? That we need to follow Christ no matter what. We need to continue in that journey, that we need to be persistent no matter what happens in life. But what's unique about verse 46 is that this devotion and this persistence is not necessarily being spoken of in terms of our relationship to Christ, but our relationship to one another, right? What we see is that true community and, and true devotion towards one another is going to require persistence. And if you're like me, that shouldn't come as a surprise to you because when you go through life, we discover that it's just hard to have certain relationships with certain people, isn't it? Right, I mean, have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you've thought, you know what? I've had it. They've, they've hurt me too many times. They, they've, they've wronged me again, or there are too many mistakes. They just keep failing. I just can't see this relationship working any longer. It can happen with siblings. It can happen with children. It can happen with spouses. We can see it with friends. We can see it over and over again. So much so that we may find ourselves coming before Christ, asking the same question that many of the disciples asked, which is, how many times... How many times do I need to forgive a brother when they sin against me? Seven? Is that good? Like at that point, can I just move on? And Jesus looks and, and smiles and says, no, 70 times seven. Right? You continue to be there for him. That's devotion. That's persistence. And so we're reminded here that if true community is going to work, there is no space in the family of faith for grudges and resentment. Only grace, only continued devotion. And that's directed towards this togetherness, right? This is a, a word that we have seen appear numerous times in these first few chapters, uh, numerous times in this paragraph, twice in this verse alone, this idea of togetherness. And, and we've defined it before as having this sameness, having this commonality. It's, it's this single-mindedness that we have one mind, Right? And, and that's such an important thing for us to continue to remember because, as we've said before, we live in a time where we are constantly accentuating our differences right? and, and the things that often divide us based on race or gender or creed or money or age, all these different things. And what happens in Christ is we come together and we say, you know, we have something that is better than all those things. We have Jesus. And that brings us 
together. And there's a solidarity, there is a single-mindedness that it should exist in this community because we know that Christ is greater than anything else that could so easily divide us. And that's so important for us because that's the song that we need to sing as the body of Christ. We live in a culture that constantly accentuates our individualistic expressions, right? Rise up and carry this as a banner, right? Seeing this is me, this is who I am. I can't change even if I wanted to. I was born this way. We, we sing this as a mantra to life. And the scriptures, they, they affirm our uniqueness. They affirm that we are uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made, but they teach us to sing a much more powerful song, not so much about ourselves, but this is who we are. It's together. Right? One of my greatest fears, and I think one of the greatest struggles we often face, in particular in our culture, is that when we gather together and we engage in church life, we do so as a collection of individuals, right? And so that's how we begin to experience church. It often feels like this. We show up and we go, man, I didn't really like the music today. I didn't really like the message. Actually, I really loved that song today. Man, Sunday school was so good. It just really spoke to me. Oh, I didn't really connect. I wish they would do this. I, I, I. And subconsciously what we're doing is we're walking through these doors and thinking, here I am. I hope today is good for me. When devotion and togetherness says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to say, there you are. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I encourage you? That's the heart of community. So, so hear me, church. We should never use the words brothers and sisters flippantly. That's who we are. If you had the benefit of standing on this platform like I do each and every week and to look out into these pews and see all the differences, all the different things that we could define ourselves by, but what we really are are brothers and sisters, and we should live accordingly. Right? So verse 46 is a great reiteration of these themes of devotion and togetherness that are already in place in this passage. Now, what's unique about it is that it elaborates on how these things are practiced, especially in the early church, in, in three distinct ways that I want to try to address this morning. It, it talks about where this community is practiced, talks about what can be done when these communities are practiced, and then in what spirit. All right, so where, what, and the spirit in which this community is practiced. That's what we're going to try to tackle a little bit this morning. Let's start with where. <clears throat> it's referenced here uh, pretty simply and pretty easy to identify. They continue to meet where? In the temple courts and in each other's homes. Two different locations, and I, and I want to address those um, in that order. Let's first talk about the temple courts. Now, why were they continuing to meet in the temple courts? You ever thought about that? I think there's some significant implications in that fact. Number one, it teaches us that they didn't see themselves, the early church didn't see themselves as some new religion, right? It's not like they were saying, man, this is totally different. We need to go start our own society. We need to form our own club, find our own building. No, what they saw was that they were the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of the promises of old. And so the temple had always been central to their ability to worship and to engage and to commune. And so they kept going to the temple. Now, typically, you'd go to the temple to sacrifice and for prayer and for reading of scriptures. Now, there's, there's a good chance, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that at some point they, they moved away from this practice of sacrifice. Right? They would have seen Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice that was sufficient. 
but the desire to continue to gather together in prayer and to gather alongside one another had to persist, right? And so they continued to meet at the temple courts. Now, what I want to point out, though, is that what I think this shows us is that you and I innately desire to be in sacred spaces. I think we're built that way. Now, now let me offer this as a disclaimer. Um, when you look at what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he says, there's going to be a day where you don't need to go to this mountain or that mountain, but we can worship God in spirit and in truth, wherever we are. And if you think about what we see written for us in the book of Hebrews that says that when Jesus was crucified and died, he entered into the most holy of holies in the heavenly realms, offering his blood as an ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Let me assure you, church, we have the freedom to worship God wherever. You can worship him in your car, in your workplace, at home, in a field, whatever. Right? That's part of the beauties of, uh, of what's happened through the gospel. But I don't think it changes the fact that there's something within each of us that desires to be in a sacred space. I think you can see this traced through the stories of the patriarchs. Right? How many times there were these moments where they would create something to signify a sacred interaction with God. Right? Think about Noah. He comes off the ark. What does he do? He builds an altar. You think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so many of the others. They have a dream. They have an interaction. They have something and they build an altar, altar to signify, I met with God here. And then that leads to the tabernacle. It leads to a temple. Right? It, it's, this, it's this innate desire that we see not just within the expression of Christianity, but, but really across humanity. Whether it's a temple, whether it's a mosque or a church, there is something innate within all of us that desires to commune in a sacred space. And I think we can see that even logically, right? Think about the other spaces that we create in our lives and how they often uh, communicate a message to us when we enter into them. You, you step into a kitchen, you know to eat, right? I come home from work and I'm tired. I step into my living room and it's as if the room is just saying, sit down, watch some TV. I'm like, think I will. And then I'm reminded of all the other things I have to do and I have to get up and do this other stuff. You, you get tired, go to your bedroom, right? There are so many examples that when we create spaces, we do so with a purpose to communicate a message. And so there's something about the human experience that says, I need a sacred space that tells me when I enter into it, I can meet God here. And so that's part of the reason why they continued to meet. <clears throat> they were drawn to gather together in a sacred space. And so should we. I love our space here. And I love the sacredness that it conveys. Can, can I just share a personal opinion for you? This is not biblical. This is just my perspective. But as I have seen the expressions of church grow in our generation and, and today, I see a trend where a lot of times churches opt for the casual and the technologically convenient when they build a space. And in so doing, there are times where they can lose an element of the sacred. And for me personally, that grieves me. One of the reasons I was so excited about responding to the call here to be uh, the pastor at this church is I loved this space. When you step into it, there's no question you're in a sanctuary. It almost instinctively evokes reverence. The imagery that surrounds us communicates the message of the gospel. 
And Matt and I talk about it all the time. Some of our favorite moments of worship is when all of a sudden, because of the way and the architecture of this room, the voices fill the air. And you can hear the church sing. I love the sacred spaces. So we should pursue this avenue towards togetherness and community in these sacred spaces. That's why we have corporate worship and Sunday Connect. Because when we gather here, we know we can meet God here. Right? Now, this is complemented with each other's homes. The sacred in this verse is complemented with the intimate. Right? Think about what's different about a home and why this would be important in terms of building togetherness and community. When you step into someone's home, you're stepping into their life, right? There's something that, that you're willing to be vulnerable about when you invite somebody into your home. Your, your home is almost an extension of who you are. In fact, I came across this article in Psychology Today recently, and it, and it phrased it like this. It says, because our physical surroundings play such an important role in creating a sense of meaning, and organization in our lives, it's not surprising that our sense of the place we live is closely tied to our sense of who we are. So when we meet in each other's homes and we invite somebody over, we're saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm being a little bit more vulnerable with you. You get to see what my life is really like. I'm giving you another glimpse, another insight into this life and into who I am. And it creates this measure of intimacy and vulnerability. And that is so necessary for genuine community, right? We have to break down some of those walls and be willing to be vulnerable and invite people in to experience those intimate moments with us. And so the early church, they were meeting in each other's homes. I granted, there's, there's some challenges there. There's some hesitations there. There are a lot of times that we want to keep those places private. And I do believe there's room for solitude and retreat. But if we don't invite people into our own homes, if we don't create that sort of intimacy and that sort of space, then there are going to be limitations in the sort of togetherness that we can actually foster. We have to be intentional with that. And so I've given a lot of thought to this recently, to, to how do we do this as a church, right? And, and I think there are a couple of ways that we need to think about. On one hand, when we think about engaging our community as a church, in some ways what we're talking about is the actual community around this particular campus. We're talking about the university, we're talking about the homes, we're talking about the businesses, and we need to come together collectively and try to impact this community. But, but perhaps even more importantly, what we're really talking about is that because we have a collection of so many different backgrounds coming together, and, and people that when you think about the footprint of, of your lives and where your homes are, we are spread all over this DFW area. We have people in Keller, we have them in Benbrook, and in Burleson, and in Fort Worth, and in Arlington. And those are communities where we begin to have a chance to, to represent Christ as well. And so as the leadership, I'm often thinking, how do we make sure that we're intentional to make sure that people are not just always retreating from the places where they live and coming here, but intentionally engaging the places that they live? So, so some ways that we can do that is even just how we structure things throughout the year. Let me give you a couple of uh, heads, heads up on some things that we're going to do in October. October, we're going to shift this series into a focus on community. We're actually going to move to another passage of Scripture. Can I get an amen? Right? Uh, but we're still being axed. Can I get an amen? Right? Um, but it's going to be focused on community and, and how do we intentionally engage. And there are a couple of things that I want you to know that we're going to do differently this year. One, uh, and really all of this is just you. 
We're just trying to create space and intentionality in the ways that we talk about it. The first that I would go ahead and tell you to put on your radar is uh, National Night Out, October 1st. It's the first Tuesday of October. This, this is such an easy way. If you're sitting there and you're like, I don't even really know my neighbors. I don't even know their names. This is such a phenomenal way to break that barrier. Uh, National Night Out is promoted by the city to help cr uh, create community safety and awareness. And so they encourage neighbors to get together and host block parties in their neighborhood. And so this is an awesome opportunity for you to go to your neighbors, print out a little flyer, and, and blame the city. And be like, hey, the city wants us to do that. You want to gather together on Tuesday? I'll provide pizza, you bring a side dish, and that's it, right? Make it simple. But, but it is such a meaningful way for you to engage in your neighborhoods. We've been doing it, uh, this will be 10 years uh, this year for us. And I can't tell you how it's created opportunities for us to connect and build those first steps of relationship with people that we live around. Right? So, so think about things like that. Use that as an opportunity to engage in your homes. The, the second piece that I would tell you about October is a little bit more intentional on our end because it's a shift in the way that we've done things historically. Um, one of the things that we're going to do differently, that we're going to try this year, is we're going we're gonna, to uh, take a different approach with how we engage in our neighborhoods towards the end of the month. It, it's been common for us to regularly have kind of a fall festival and a trunk or treat here at our church around Halloween. And it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. We get dressed up. Um, we decorate our trunks. And, and it's a great way to, to meet folks in this community. But, but can I just tell you, from my observation, there are some limitations that we often encounter with this approach, right? On one hand, while we get to connect with people from our community, more often than not, we're stuck at our cars and we're handing out candy and there's this really long line. And so it doesn't always lend itself to really meaningful, personal conversation. And, and so the sort of relationships that you can foster there can sometimes be constrained by that environment. But the other thing that we began to wrestle with as we were discussing this amongst some of us on staff is what we're kind of doing is we're pulling you out of your own neighborhoods, right? I mean, there's a time in a year where everyone expects you to be with your neighbors or to be in your home to greet your neighbors. And what we're saying is, hey, leave that and come here. And, and so we wanted to say, you know what? No, let's, let's encourage you. Be be with your neighbors that night. So we're going to forego our fall festival this year with the intentionality of creating space for you to say, I want to use my home as an opportunity to engage others. Invite people from the church over, however you want to do it. Be creative with it. Be intentional with it. But use that as an opportunity to intentionally engage in your own neighborhood and in your own environment. So, that, so some of it is just the way we schedule things and talk about things. But if you want to know our main emphasis on how we try to create space for us to get beyond the church walls and into each other's homes, it's through our discipleship groups. That, that's really our answer. Right? So we, we've talked about how we meet in the sacred through Sunday Connect and through corporate worship. But if we're doing that well, we should all reach a point where we're saying, you know what, this isn't enough. I, I need more opportunity to pray with you, to commune with you, to, to, to come and study God's word with you. And so we need to meet outside of these walls in a more intimate setting. And that's where discipleship groups are. So a couple of disclaimers about discipleship groups. First and foremost, um, one of the things I want you to know is that we're supposed to be launching these by the end of the month. And so my hope is that as you are going to Sunday Connect right now, you're hearing from different facilitators saying, hey, here's where we're going to try to offer ours let us know if this time works for you and, and you're starting to formulate into your groups. You're, you're asking, hey, can I join yours? Um, if you're a facilitator, this is your gentle reminder. Make, make sure you're letting your group know when you're meeting and, and let's try to get those things 
in place. And, and because it's our first year, I anticipate there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve. But, but I want us to begin to really intentionally respond to those sorts of invitations. Now again, quick disclaimer, I fully recognize that in an ideal world, it'd be great that we're actually meeting in each other's homes. Um, but because of logistics like a commute or childcare, some of you are going to opt to meet at the church, like mine. And, and that's okay, right? Um, because it's the heart behind it, right? That, that what we want is a space where you can truly be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more intimate and come together and experience community teaching and accountability in a way that is very real and very authentic, right? But we have to have both. Right? We have to have the sacred, and we have to have the intimate. Now, I recognize that for many of us, when we start thinking about that, we're going to say, you know, but that's, that's fairly inconvenient. It's hard to host. Our weeks are busy. We've got a lot going on, and I get it. But, but let me give you just a simple um, word of encouragement of just something that you can do to really help foster the community that should be experienced in those sorts of arenas. First of all, we've, we've provided some things that you can go through, right? Here's, here's a recommendation of how to read through the scriptures and so on and so forth. But what's so neat about verse 46 is it reminds us of one of the most important ways to foster community. In verse 46, it says, here's what you can do. Eat. Amen? How great is that? Praise God, man. Like, seriously, that was the, eat together. How cool is that? Right? They broke bread and ate. Now, breaking bread was likely referring to the Lord's Supper, right? We've talked about this with verse 42. There was an element of them sharing in the ordinances together as an act of worship, but there's also just the simplicity of eating. And so part of what I want to do now is remind you of the power of sharing a meal together. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us because for whatever reason, eating is one of the central elements of the scriptures. You ever thought about this? Right? It, eating is central to the promises of creation. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Eating is central to the fall. She took, she ate, she gave. Eating is central to our disciplines. It teaches us to fast, to go without, so that we can long for our relationship with God and with our creator. It's, it's central to the way we celebrate and we, we remember what God has done. We have feasts, feasts of tabernacles, feasts of the Passover, feasts when we celebrate the prodigal's return home. We see eating as central to redemption. When a Savior sits down with his disciples and says, take this bread, take this cup, do this in remembrance of me. We see eating as central to the promise of a new heaven and new earth where we get to celebrate the wedding banquet of the Lamb. So is it any surprise to us that eating becomes central to community? There is something incredibly powerful about sharing a meal together. And so I want to work through this by first talking about our family. All right, because um, when we talk about discipleship, that should include your family. So whatever your family looks like, and I know they all look different, based on this room, right? For some of you, it's just your spouse. For some of you, it's just your children. Some of you, it's just your siblings. It's just your friends. Whatever it looks like, your family should be sharing meals together. I'm here to tell you that I think it's biblical, but I think you can also see it in research. In fact, uh, a study was done by Columbia University not too long ago, and they, they looked at all the benefits that children have when their family shares a meal together, shares a dinner together at least five times a week. Those children 
have less struggles with alcohol. They uh, eat healthier in general. They are able to have, or they often report greater academic performances and closer relationships with their parents. Right? It, it is genuinely good for you to take those moments where you set everything else aside and say, okay, how was your day? What's going on in your world? And you sit around a dinner table. And it's not just for your family. Think about all the barriers that it breaks down. There are so many things in life that we're told don't associate with people over, right? Because they're a different race, because they're a different gender, because they're a different age or a different religion or creed or whatever. And we create these barriers, but then all of a sudden you eat together. And then what are you saying? There's something that binds us. There's something that we can commune over. There's something powerful about a dinner table. Let, let me tell you a story that I think illustrates it so well. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, David Brooks and his book, The Second Mountain, and how he is the one that really helps attack this hyper-individualized society that we find ourselves living in. And, and so, so much of his book is to say, here's how you foster rich, meaningful community. And in one chapter, he uses this example of this, this couple that has really found the power of sharing a meal around a dinner table. Uh, it's Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson. They're married, and they have a young son named Santi. They live in the Washington, D.C. area. And so not too long ago, Santi had discovered that one of his friends at school named James often went to bed hungry. And so they invited him over to dinner. And they realized the situation was a little bit more um, severe than what they first assumed, and so there were even occasions where they would just let him stay through the night so that they could feed him again in the morning. And as these stories often yield, there was one person that led to another person. James had a friend who had a friend. And so they continually just kept opening up their home to feed these younger kids that were constantly hungry. And so they just started doing this regularly. They even began to set aside every Thursday night, if there's somebody that you know that's hungry, they can come over to our house and we will feed them. So they've been doing this for years. And now on any given Thursday night, you show up at Kathy and David's house and you may find up to 26 kids sitting around their table, with many as four or five even living in their home during that time or a home nearby to help care for their needs. So, so David Brooks, the author that's telling this story, says he was invited over to this experience about five years ago, 2014. He shows up and there's this young man named Ed with dreadlocks and as Brooks describes, these soulful looking eyes that welcomes him at the door and, and Brooks extends his hand to introduce himself and Ed looks at him and goes, man, we don't shake hands here, we hug and just, boom, immediately embraces him. And, and so Brooks recounts his experience there. He says, we gather around this dinner table. Kathy, the mom, uh, bans cell phones, right? Be in the now, she says. And about a third of the way through the meal, she says, all right, somebody say what you're grateful for, something we don't know about you, and people just have an opportunity to share. And a lot of times there's an occasion for a celebration. Somebody gets a job, somebody graduates, somebody passes their GED exam, whatever it is. But a lot of times it's, it's vulnerability. It's a 17-year-old girl that's dealing with a new pregnancy. It's a young girl who has all these medical concerns and doesn't have the money to pay for the procedure she needs. He says on one occasion he was there and this, this one girl was 21 years old and she said, this is the first time I've sat down at a dinner table since I was 11. He recounts that so many of the stories are typical of children that go through the traumas of poverty in America. Stories that often result in homelessness, Many of the children that have been cycled through the foster care system, and a common theme, sadly, is male cruelty. A father or a male figure who has hurt them, neglected them, misled them, abandoned them. And so here, they find affirmation. Around this table, they're told they're loved, 
and they're valued. David Brooks took his daughter one night, and as they were leaving, his daughter turned to him and said, that's the warmest place I've ever been. So Kathy and David has this, this heartfelt need to just respond to the needs of those around them. They've told all these children, hey, when you get ready for college, we'll find a way to get you there. And now that so many of these children are, are reaching that age, they've actually started a nonprofit to help pay for these kids to go to school because they see it as family. And so Brooks is quick to say, listen, if you show up at Kathy and David's house, there's no doubt you're going to find them, they're probably exhausted. And there are many days where they look at each other and they say, is there a better way to do this? And they're wrestling with all those realities. But what they're not asking is, are they doing anything valuable with their lives? They see the significance that this has begun to create. And in his summary of it, he offers this quote that I think is so great. He says, the dinner table is the key technology of social intimacy here. It is the tool we use to bond, connect, and commit to one another. I've learned to never underestimate the power of a dinner table. It's the stage on which we turn toward one another for love like flowers seeking the sun. I love that. We have to open up our homes to each other, to our neighbors, to those that are far from God. As much as we might be inviting people to church, we need to invite them to dinner because powerful things happen in those moments. Now, you start processing all this and you're going, okay, wait a second. You're telling me I got to come to church and Sunday Connect and now be a part of a D group and now actually have people over for dinner and I get it, right? It's going to feel like a lot. And if you're like me, you're sitting there going, but you know what? My house is dirty and, and I got all these other things going on and we got all these activities and it's hard. It is because it's devotion. And so how do we manage those emotions? And this is what I love about verse 46, is it doesn't just tell us where, it doesn't just tell us what, but it also tells us the Spirit, right? Because the reality is, is a lot of times we could look at these things and we could do it out of obligation and duty. And can I just be honest with you this morning, the last thing I want is for you to get involved and to show up here and to show up at Sunday Connect or in a D group out of obligation or because someone told you to. Do you realize how shallow that makes a relationship? It, so Jennifer started work again this summer for the first time in seven years, I think. And so on her first day of work, I sent her some flowers to encourage her and be like, you can do it. <laughs> uh, getting up early again. And um, so about halfway through her day, she texted me and she said, hey, thank you for the flowers. Can you imagine how she would have felt if I responded, well, I had to. It's my duty. I'm your husband. Right, let's think about it pastorally. Let's say, God forbid, someday you're in a hospital and, and I need to come over there and, and pray over you for what you're facing. And I walk into your hospital room and you're grateful to see somebody that's there to offer prayers over you and you say, thank you so much for coming. And I say, well, you know, I kind of had to. It's in my job description. I'm obligated. It's not the sort of relationship any of us wants. Right? That, that's not what fosters meaningful community. What's going on here? is glad and sincere hearts. That's how we pursue devotion. That's how we pursue community. Right? Glad means to have great joy or extreme delight. Sincere means simple or humble. I love that. Right? Humility takes us into that passage in Philippians chapter 2 that says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. 
That's the sort of disposition that we need to carry. One of humility. One that sincerely desires to be there for other people. We should be people of joy. That's the mark of a follower. That's the mark of community. I think about this all the time. Right? If, if somebody were to walk into these walls on a Sunday morning and they've never been to church before, here's my hope. My hope is that first and foremost they have a clear articulation and opportunity to hear the gospel. And I also hope that somebody meets them and gets their name and begins to know their story. And they walk out of here and they may not have understood everything that was said that morning. They may not remember the names of those that came up and introduced themselves to them. But hopefully they walk out of there and they say, you know what? That's a joyful group. Those people are filled with joy. That's my hope for my home. Right? I think about the season of life that I'm in. I think about my children and the ages that they're in. And I hope that someday when they're older and they look back on their childhood... They're not going to remember it to be perfect. They're not going to remember it to be just everything that they wanted. But I hope they look back and they say, you know what? But there was joy. And every time somebody steps into my house, I hope they extend us grace. Because they're, it's not going to be the cleanest. It's not going to be the fanciest. It's not going to be the nicest. And there's going to be a lot of things that they could walk away and criticize. But hopefully they walk out and they say, but you know what? There was joy. Joy is the mark of the believer. It's the mark of our community. We should have a joyful worship experience every Sunday morning, and we should have joyful homes. Amen? That's the mark of a believer, to live in joy. Now, what makes this passage so powerful are the first two words of this verse. Every day. That's where it becomes difficult. This Devotion, as I said before, is not occasional, it's not seasonal, it is not temporary. It's everyday joy. And that's harder because all of us realize that there are moments where joy is going to be difficult to come by. There are going to be days where we want people to be away, not near. And what's beautiful about this sort of community is that on those hard days, we come alongside one another, shoulder to shoulder, brother and sister, and we encourage each other to have joy. One of the most amazing components for me as a pastor is, is seeing how somebody grieves the loss of a loved one. And healthy, vibrant, God-fearing families take what is often one of the most difficult moments of life and they come together and they reflect on memories and they reflect on the hope of the gospel and they laugh and they smile. Yes, in the midst of tears. Yes, in the midst of pain, but they still have joy that's what community does, is it allows us on our hardest days and our hardest moments be able to look to our left and our right and find a brother or sister that's there to say, I'm with you in this. Yes, even today is a day that the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad. That's the mark of the community. That's the song we need to sing. And so that's how we're going to close our time this morning. You know, uh, in the early 1900s, Henry Van Dyke put together some beautiful poetry that was set to some music and became a melody that the church has sung for more than 100 years. And it's an opportunity for us to declare the promises that we see in these scriptures. It's an opportunity for us to declare to God as well as to each other what it means to live out these sorts of relationships with a joyful disposition. To be able to come together and to celebrate and to cry out to God and say, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord 
of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before the opening to the sun above. And we can come in preparing to sing those things, knowing that, yes, we may be facing hardship. We may step into this room with a certain level of grief and challenges, with doubt and concern, but even here we can cry out to our God, melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away, because you are a giver of immortal gladness, and we know our God can fill us with the light of day. And yet I love how this song sings, how it ends. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. And yes, God, though we are mortals, we are mortals who join in a happy chorus which the morning stars began. Father's love is reigning over us. Brother's love binds man to man. So ever singing, march we onward. Victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us sunward in the triumph song of life. That's the melody of the devoted life. And it's the melody we want to sing today as a reminder of this call to be people who commit to meeting each other in the sacred and in the private moments, in the power of fellowship, in the commitment to one another that leads us to everyday joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so joyful and so grateful for what you've done and who you are. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to take all the challenging times, times and moments of our lives and allow us to, to truly just surrender to you and commit to you in a way that allows us to rejoice in each and every day. Father, I pray that as we continue to foster community amongst one another, that we would be able to do so in both the sacred and in the intimate spaces. Father, that we would live a life of a joyful disposition as we seek to devote ourselves to one another and to you. And Father, may we do this in such a way that when people look in on our lives, they won't see perfection, they won't see that we have it all together, but they'll see grace, and they'll see love, and they'll see joy. May that be true for us today and forevermore. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.